Hear the word of God from a selection of verses in, in Psalm 119. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see all your beautiful, smiling faces. You guys are beautiful. I hope you're doing well. We are continuing today in our short series on the values of our church. Last week, we looked into the value of the nations. We have a heart for the nations here at Waypoint Church, and we saw that through the table of nations, through the genealogy that I made that wonderful young man read last week, <laughs> that all human beings are equal, and those that have received blessing from God receive it so that they can be a blessing to others. We, as the people of God, are called to be a blessing to the nations. Now, I want you to say that again. Guys, we're all equal. Every nation, every race, every ethnicity, every group, we're all equal. We saw that. But those who receive blessing, in other words, those who know the beautiful relationship that we get to have, this intimate relationship with God, we're not called to sit there and be like, look how blessed we are. We're called then to take that blessing and being a blessing to the nations, to everybody who doesn't know. Right? So that's our value. That's what we believe is one of the most important elements of our church. Today we're looking into another value, and that is the Word of God. We here at Waypoint Church have a very high regard for Scripture. We believe it's God's revelation to mankind, divinely given through human authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is entirely true, totally sufficient, and completely authoritative for matters of life and faith. So we hold to a high, high view of Scripture here. 
So what we attempt to do is we attempt to root all that we do at Waypoint in Scripture. We attempt to teach it faithfully. We to promote it for personal and group study of the Word and to make sure its proclamation is spread throughout the world. Why? How should you personally feel and think about the Word of God? How should it impact your life, our lives? We're going to take some time today. We're going to look into the, the longest psalm for some of these answers. Now, this is a really long psalm, if you guys didn't know that. I didn't have the reader. Sarah, you're welcome. I didn't have you read the whole thing. That would have taken a very long time. If it was Youth Sunday, I would have had them read the whole thing. Just to, just to mess with them. I believe that Psalm 19, 119 is both a meditation on the Word of God and a summons to meditate. It's this idea is captured in verse 97, where it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The words meditate or meditation occur a number of times in this psalm. Uh, what's more, the psalm mentions in virtually every one of its verses the Word of God. It uses a variety of different biblical terms like statutes, rules, commandments, word, precepts, testimonies, promise, and so on. So before we dive into this psalm, I want us to look into what it meant to meditate on this word in its original context, what it means to meditate. I think it's vital to how we appreciate and understand this psalm. It's obviously important to know how the psalm functioned in the lives of its original hearers, why it was written as it is, and how the devout made use of it in their own walk with God. So the very first thing I want you to, we need you to appreciate about Psalm 119, it was actually meant for the ancient hearers and readers to be memorized. Yes, all of Psalm 119. I'm talking about 176 verses was meant to be memorized. I once took my high school students to a conference uh, called Student Life Conference Tour. And there, the speaker there was a guy named David Platt. And I remember him preaching on the Word of God. And I remember him reciting Psalm 119 from memory. He recited it the whole time for the youth. And I thought, what a terrible thing to do. Well, that's just a bad idea. You got a bunch of high school players, middle schoolers, and they're just listening to a guy recite Psalm 119. I'd be like, that is just, he doesn't know anything about youth ministry. What is he thinking? And that's why I thought, but instead, my youth were blown away. They were just amazed. They were blown away that someone loved and cherished scripture enough to commit this huge chunk of text to memory. My people, there are people around the world who memorized so large chunks of the Quran and the Torah and other such texts. Do we care such for the word of God given to us? And guys, can I tell you, I hate it when the sermons are meant for me. I hate it when I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that hurts me here. <laughs> Do we care enough? Do we understand that this is meant to be memorized? Actually, large chunks of text are meant to be memorized because what happens when you memorize things, right? It's there when you need it. You hear that? See, sometimes your Bible's not there. Nowadays, we got our phones, which is kind of cheating. You know? It was easier doing this sermon a little bit ago. But no, it's there when your heart needs it, when your head needs it, when your friends need it, when your coworker needs it, and your family needs it. When you have it memorized, it's there. Not only that, when you have it memorized, you sit in it, you think about it, you meditate on it. It starts shaping you, affecting you. You know, class, classic texts from the ancient world were, were um, actually like this. They were intended to enculturate those who heard them to form their character, and it was meant to be good and right for any particular culture. These texts existed. Um, very few copies of books existed in the ancient world. We didn't have a printing press in the ancient world, so no one could run to the bookstore and pick up the copy of like the Iliad or the Odyssey. 
They were read, they were spoken out loud, there were oral traditions listened and proclaimed so that the people of the area could now say, this is our culture, this shapes us, it shapes us morally, it shapes us culturally. In the same way as the books that we now know as the Old Testament were heard and not read originally by the most Israelites. They heard them at the synagogue, at school, they heard them recited at public events, great feasts, the liturgical calendar. Uh, in fact, the significance of the, almost the entire Psalter, not just Psalm 19, they were hymns intended to be memorized and known by heart. The Psalms were intended not simply to teach, but to inscribe on the heart the theology, the ethics, the, 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 the views, the worldviews that God has for his people. And memorization was this path to spiritual maturity because it meant internalizing the word of God. Has this convicted you yet? Just wondering. If not, I'll keep on going. I'll keep on going. In this sense, in so many ways, we have noticed through the years that Israel and the Bible was product of its time. Throughout the ancient world, great literature of the people were intending to preserve what was considered wisdom of the culture. Whether Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, Hebrew, all these cultures, great texts were regularly chanted or sung. Now, singing actually makes things easier to memorize. Do you guys hear me on that one? That's for me, it's hardcore. I had to memorize something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism in seminary. And I had to memorize it in the Old English. And it's terrible. It was so hard to do. But instead, so I found a CD. So I found online, or not a CD, I found music online. And somebody put the whole thing to song. And it was a terrible song. But it made it so much easier to memorize. This guy with a bad voice and acoustic guitar with a terrible recording would be like, What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. I mean, that's the only way I memorized it. <laughs> when you put the music, it's easier to memorize. That's what the Psalms did. It put, it put scripture to song so you can memorize it. How many of you guys can sing the entire theme song to Full House or Friends? Honestly, raise your hand if you can sing any of those theme songs. Okay, maybe I should use my age and said full house. I should have picked a different one. <laughs> Nobody, really? <laughs> I can do like, whatever happened to predictability? Anybody? The milkman, the paper boy. Thank you very much. <laughs> that show was old and people are still singing and memorize that song. Was that 1990s, I think, or early 90s, 94? I think that's what it was. I can't recall a single verse out of Psalm 119. It's because, well, I could probably do one, but. <laughs> It's because I don't have it to song. I don't have it memorized. I bet you take the number of songs you have memorized, think about all the songs you have memorized, and you probably see that if you looked at all those songs, all those lyrics, all those words you have memorized, you probably could have memorized so many large chunks of scriptures a hundred times over. Right? Nathan's over there not shaking his head. I bet you he has probably like a thousand songs memorized. There's a game I play, I like to call it called Encore. And it's a game where you have two teams and you go back and forth. You think of like a category that has a certain thing. Like for example, the category could be animals. And you think of songs that have animal in it, you know, like a, the, the lion sleeps tonight. And you go back and forth thinking of songs, I can go forever. I know a million songs by memory. I don't know that much scripture by memory. I don't know anywhere near the amount of songs I have by memory that I have scripture by memory. Plato tells us that when Greek children had learned their letters, uh, they were furnished with the works of good poets to read as they sit in class, and they are made to learn them by heart. Why? Plato explains. Here they met with many admonitions, many descriptions and praises and eulogies of good men in times past that the boy may envy, may imitate them, and long to become even as they. These works both instructed the young in the life of a Greek and understood the virtue, the love of glory, the value of cunning, the importance of honor, and such forth. At dinner parties, Greek men were expected to show off their learning by reciting these poems. They were also performed at great festivals. 
There's a saying by the name of, uh, by, the, uh, by the man Nicaragua saying, my father, wishing me to become a good man, made me learn the whole of Homer, so that even today I can still recite the Iliad and Odyssey by heart. Now, don't fail to grasp what that means. It's literally saying the, the whole of Iliad and Odyssey is the whole of the Old Testament. It's about the same length. He memorized all the material. It's possible that people have memorized all of the Old Testament. I had a professor in seminary named Bruce Walkie. And he was sharing about a time when he was in uh, the Holy Land, and he lived there, and um, he said in his hall, while he was living there, there was a, a Jewish scholar with whom he became friends. And they would talk, and as they would talk and share about Scripture, where Bruce would have to look up the Bible and be like, oh, let me find, I remember this was here, this was here. The, the scholar that he was talking to basically had all the Pentateuch and the Psalms committed to memory, completely and fully. It's just this incredible reality that God has called us to memorize Scripture, not as a legal enterprise, not as a earn your way to salvation, not as a discipline that says, hey, you better do this or you're not cool enough, you're not holy enough, not as earning spiritual brownie points, but as a way of taking His very Word, placing it on our hearts so that we have it and it transforms us. The Bible is written in such a way to make it easy, actually, for that. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. It's one that follows the order of the alphabet with each new verse or new section beginning with the next letter. So it made it even easy to memorize. Plus, it turned most of the psalms were turned into songs to memorize. God's like, guys, guys, I know how you struggle with memorizing things. So I'm going to turn uh, scripture into songs, and I'm going to give you an acrostic poem. In Psalm 119, each verse and each section of eight verses begins with the same Hebrew letter, beginning with Aleph in the first section, and proceeding through the alphabet to tall in the last section. So basically, do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? Is basically the first section of eight verses begins with a word that say begins with the letter A. So all eight verses in that first section begin with the first letter of the alphabet. Then the next section, eight verses, begin with B, C, D. Does that make sense? All the way down. Could you imagine how hard that's going to be when you get to like Q and X? I'm just saying, not easy. But that was given to us as a means of memorizing Scripture. How great is the Word of God? Intentional, not by accident. How intentional and purposeful is the Word of God? Now, this memorization was meant for two huge reasons, to know the Word and to let it transform you. In order for this to happen, we need to do three things. One, Recognize the worth and majesty of the word. Two, tap into its power. Three, see that the word points to Jesus and Jesus is the word made flesh. So number one, recognize the worth and majesty of the word. Right off in verse one, it says, blessed are those, blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. And when you think of the word law, we typically think, oh, the law, the Ten Commandments, right? Or we think maybe uh, the, the parts of Exodus or Deuteronomy. But if you actually read through not just Psalm 19, but the rest of the Bible, you see the Bible refers often to its entirety as, as the law. There are two places, for example, where Jesus in the New Testament quotes Psalms. And Psalms, of course, are, are, are poems, are, are literature, type of literature that's poetry. But both places, Jesus says, it is written in your law. You see that? So when Jesus is all referring to the law, he's not just referring to the first five books. He's referring to the whole sum of the Old Testament. The vast majority of the Bible is actually not in the form of law. It's in the form of narrative or history or poetry or that sort of thing. But it's noteworthy that it calls itself in its entirety sometimes the law. Jesus calls poetry the law. What does that mean? 
It means all is, all is law. It means it's all authoritative. It means it's all normative. It means there's no suggestions in the, book, in the Bible. It's all binding on us and authoritative. But not only that, verse two says, blessed are those who keep his statutes. The word of God, the commands of God, the Bible are statutes that last forever. It says in Psalm 150, uh, 119, 150, verse 151. What it's saying is this is permanent. This is not just God's law, God's word for just this little bit of time. He's saying this is his word, his law, his statutes that are permanent. That the Bible is valid, that the Bible sits in judgment over what parts of our culture are valid and what parts of our culture are not. So not only is it authoritative for all times and places, but in all its parts, every bit of it. Psalm 151, uh, verse 151 says, the psalmist, all your commands are true. One, verse 160, it says, all your words are true, all. There's a place where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, says this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. The Hebrew word there translated abolish is more akin to loosen, you know, to let go of. And the law, that's the word he literally says is to loosen, he says to let go. He says, I'm not gonna loosen or let go of one iota, of one dot of the law. He's literally saying a jot or tittle, or jot was as you, is, is the smallest of Hebrews letters, and a tittle is actually a part of a letter. So he's, he's actually literally saying that I'm not gonna let go of even one letter of the law or even one part of a letter of the law. Every single part of the Bible, all his words, Jesus is actually saying all the letters, even the parts of the letters, I'm not gonna loosen, I'm not gonna abolish, I'm not gonna let go of, they're all binding on you. It's absolutely authoritative. It's also absolutely majestic. Now the reason I call this majestic because it's kingly. The Bible is great and the Bible is great, absolutely sovereign and completely authoritative. And not only Jesus, but the psalmist is talking about his majesty, its kingliness, its authority. Guys, I want you to hear this. Why is this great? Why is this majestic? Why is this worthy? Because we all crave this. I know some of us chafe under ideals of rules and regulations. You want to be your own boss. You want to have your own rules and regulations. But the reality is that we need rules. We need authority. We need justice. Our king provides all that and more. I mean, hear me when I say that. We all wanna be the own God, we wanna control our own world, but the reality is this, if there were no laws that governed all of it, if there was no rule of what is right and wrong, if there was no true sense of morality and beauty, then there's mass chaos, it is anarchy and anything goes and the strongest survives, right? But that's not what happens in our hearts. Our hearts yearn for, our hearts long for justice and beauty and righteousness. And when we see a, a child being brutally hurt or murdered, we think, no, that is wrong. We yearn for a king. We yearn for authority. And our king provides that and more. The scriptures is majestic and worthy because it shows a holy, beautiful, righteous king that we crave for because we were made for him. So two, we see the scriptures as majestic, as worthy. Two, then we also now look into its power. Uh, Tim Keller is the one who kind of really informed this part of this section, so I'm taking so much from him here. Its power is to liberate, not confine, and to bring into you into spiritual intimacy and not spiritual deadness. So there are two things that it can give you once you understand the Bible's authority. One is liberation, and two is intimacy. 
So one is liberation, two is intimacy. First of all, liberation. Verse 45 says, I will walk about in freedom. This is against what most people think. We just sought this idea of we just established authority. We just established kingship. We just established the Bible is totally in control and in authority. We call this submit to it. But here it says, I will walk about in freedom. The more I submit, the more free I get. How can that be? In what ways is submission to the authority of God not confined but free? Here's what I mean. First, it is, as Tim Keller said, it's culturally liberating. It is culturally liberating. How are you that 20 to 50% of the things you believe now will be an utter embarrassment to your great-great-grandchildren? Do you guys realize that? 50% of the things that you're like, oh, I'm so sure of now, it's going to be like, really? You really thought that? Ah, it's kind of sad, buddy. Right? Think about some of the things that our great-great-grandparents believed. This will cure the cough. Right? Oh, that illness or that sickness, this will help make better. You're like, no. Now you're like, that's not a good idea. I was watching a thing. I was watching a movie. I remember in the movie, the guy had a cut and, and this woman was putting some stuff on. He's like, what is that? Oh, it's, it's cow dung and urine. I'm like, he's like, what? <laughs> they thought that would help his cut out. Things that we think is true now, we're going to look in the future and be like, ooh, that probably wasn't true. Right? Unless you happen to be living in the ultimate cultural moment of all of civilization. You happen to be living in the peak of understanding, peak of enlightenment right now. Probably not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> in all seriousness, we know that we haven't come to the peak of enlightenment. So how are you to critique where you are? How are you to escape the rulings and the thoughts of just the culture? How are you going to be culturally liberated how are we going to be liberated, liberally, cult, uh, how do we get liberated from our culture? How do you get the distance you need to be able to critique what's happening in your time and place and say, yes, this is right and this is good or this is wrong and this is not good? What better way would there be than to have a text that has been around for centuries that millions of people have said liberated them, millions of people in all different cultures all throughout the centuries, there's a text that exists that says this is the word of God that says trumps the cultural understanding of our day. Do you not see how it's possible to actually believe the Bible as the all true word of God is culturally liberating? It gives you distance to step away from the culture you're in and to say this is truth, this is God. This is to take you away from your, the t time that you're in and say this is truth, this is God. Not be blinded by the culture. Do you see, it's, it's freeing to know that there's something that says, hey, I don't have to be what the culture tells me to be. I don't have to fit into the box that culture tells me I have to fit into the box. I don't have to think the way the culture tells me to think. I am liberated from that. I'm freed from that by the word of God when I submit to it. It's also psychologically liberating. Verse 133 says, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. It's very clear here if God's word... It says very clearly here, if God's word is not ruling you, if God is not your highest good, if God's word is not your ultimate authority, something else is ruling you. Simon Will, the famous French philosopher, says this, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. That's all. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as much, but in fact, through, though unknown to oneself, imagine the attributes of divinity in them. If God is not the center of your life or something else is, though you think, oh, it's not God, you're actually treating it as God. 
Becky Piper puts it something like this, whatever controls you is God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We don't control ourselves, we're, we're controlled by the Lord of our lives. Either God is the ultimate authority or something else is ruling you. But you're not free. You won't know that until you're freed by the word of God. Verse 45 says this, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I'll speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. This is a person who says, when God's word became the main ruling authority, when what God's word says about me, unfailing, unconditional love, I no longer need people's approval. I no longer need status. I don't care what the king even says. I don't even care. I don't care if I'm even alive. I don't even care about death. I'm not afraid. I don't care what people can do to me. I care about money, human approval, status, or material things. Though they used to drive me, I don't care. This is what these verses here in Psalm 119 says. There is no, nothing more psychologically liberating than to be actually under the rule of God and only care what he has to care about you. God, can I just be honest with you? I'm a people pleaser. I'm just going to be honest about that. And it's exhausting having to be under the rule and authority of a bunch of people. It is. I've got to make sure my wife is pleased with me. My kids are pleased with me. My parents are pleased with me. You guys are pleased with me. My friends are pleased with me. And it's exhausting, right? And if I fully believe that my God is an authority, and my only authority is God, He's the only one, and I know He's well and pleased with me by the belief in the Word, then I am free. Do you hear that? See, I'm going to be ruled by whatever it is I choose to follow. Whatever I choose that drives me is what I'm ruled by. That is my God. And I'm choosing to rule by being a people pleaser. And so then I'm now ruled by all these gods. Man, but if I say, God, I submit to you, I only want to be pleasing to you. I want to be ruled by you, then I am free. Then I can say, who cares what they think of me? If you're ruled by your love of money, oh, man, you're ruled by the amount of money you can get or who controls the money. You're enslaved to that. If you're ruled by power or material things, whatever it may be, you're enslaved to it. So you'll do anything to get it. And you're trapped. And you never know if you have enough money. You never know if you're good enough, right? But if you submit to the authority of God in his word to be pleasing unto him, then his very word then says back to you, I am pleased with you. That's free. This leads also to intimacy with God. I'll go so far as to say that unless you believe the Bible is absolutely infallible, you cannot grow to greater depth of intimacy with God. Because we're made for personal relationships. And in personal relationships, one needs to be able to connect with another person intimately, right? I always said we, we are made to, we want to be known, we want to be loved, and we crave purpose. This idea of being in a personal relationship, can I tell you something? If you do not believe the word is infallible, if you do not believe in the authority of the word of God, then you're not in a personal relationship with God. Let me tell you why. Because if you can nitpick, if you can pick and choose what parts of the Bible you choose to believe in, if you can nitpick and pick and choose and say, I believe in this, but I don't believe in that. If, if this says this, this does that. If, and if nothing in the Bible can contradict what you already feel or what you already know to be true, then it's not really authoritative. It doesn't really speak into you, does it? Right? It's, it's, it's more along the lines of having a relationship with somebody that can't. Like, what would it look like if you have a relationship with somebody and that person can't speak to you, can't, can't speak against you, can only agree with you, can never say no to you, 
can never call out anything that you don't want called out. Is that a relationship or is that an exploitive relationship? Is that intimacy? If the Bible, and when we look at the Bible, we think, okay, I only want to take out the good stuff that I like about it, right? I only want to take out the points that make sense to my heart and my head sometimes, right? But nothing in it can really challenge me. Nothing can make me cringe a little bit. Nothing in it can criticize what I think or believe that you're in an exploitive relationship with the Bible. I know. That sounds a little harsh. But can I tell you something? This is what intimacy is. Can the Bible and the words of the scripture challenge the way you think and can make it pierce you to your heart and say, man, that's tough. Man, I've, I've been wrong in that. Wow, that's, that's, that's real, that's right, and I gotta submit to that authority. Do you hear that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, if, if it is I who say where God will be, I will always find that there is a false God, a God who in some way corresponds to me, is agreeable to me, and fits in with my nature. The psalmist believes that all thy words are true, all thy commands are true. He believes in an infallible Bible. Go read the psalms and see whether you, you don't have an intimate personal relationship there between the psalmist and God. He does. The psalmist and God's weeping. He's arguing. There's a give and take with God there. It's incredibly intimate. God, can I tell you, it's this beautiful intimacy with God cannot come if you're not willing to let God change your heart, if you're not willing to let the Bible disagree with you. Do you hear me? Otherwise, it's, you're just worshiping a glorified, idealized version of yourself. That's not intimacy. Finally, the word ultimately points us to Jesus. The word made flesh. There's a little bit of an issue that I have with this psalm and a lot of Psalms in particular, but this one in particular, is he almost seems to personify and idolize the word. Doesn't he? Right? He seems to really personify. For example, your statues are my delight, then they're my counselors. Uh, kind of poetic, but okay, but they're personified. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. I lift up my hands, like, uh, lift up my hands seems like to worship. You're lifting up your hands to his, aren't you worshiping something false? You can't, that doesn't make sense. You, you worship the commands? That's not worshiping God, right? To lift up a hands is one of the Hebrew verbs that describe worship, so he's worshiping the Bible, and it kind of makes me go, wait a minute. Is that right? Verse 37 says, turn my eyes away from worthless things. By the way, that's the word for idols. Preserve my life according to your word. Wait, wait, preserve my life as you say in your word? That doesn't say that. It says that word according means through, and that word preserve means save. It's stated four or five times about save me through your word. Now, is it appropriate to call a text or a book something like this saving me or as an object of worship? In some ways it doesn't seem to be, but maybe the psalmist is intuiting something that you and I in our place in history can know as fact. That is John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Most other religions have God's Word as text, but no other religion has God's Word as flesh. 
This is the only way we can have that personal relationship to trust him. Why do we trust the word as text? Because I've seen what was done as the word as flesh. When he was the word made flesh, he followed the text. He was obedient to the father. He, was, he saved us by being obedient to the word. He saved us by being obedient to every jot and tittle, every iota, every bit of the word. So when we know the place where it says, save me according to the word, this idea that it says, if we saved according to the word, this idea of legalism because we're keeping the word. But in reality, when we say saved according to the word, what we're really saying is save me according to the word that was made flesh. Because every bit of the word in text is really about that word made flesh. Every prophet, every priest, every king is pointing to Jesus. You read about the temple, and you read about the sacrifices, you read about the law, but the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus. You read about the kings and the prophets, the ultimate king, the ultimate prophet is Jesus. The word made text is about the word made flesh. And when you see the word made text, you don't realize that it's all about Jesus. The word is this idea that if we just obey the word by itself, and we idolize the word, yes, that is legalism, that is idolatry, but we look and see that the word made flesh is Jesus, that is the beauty of the gospel. When we realize that every bit of the word was pointing to and then fulfilled by the life and work of Jesus Christ. And he is now our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. He's the Savior who lived out every bit of the word perfectly and then died upon the cross so that every bit of our sins, you remember guys we talked about this yearning for justice we have, this yearning for righteousness and holiness for what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. Well, here's a just God who showed us what that means through this word, through the Bible, showed us that there is holiness, there is justice, there is righteousness, but there's also grace. And he said his son, word made flesh, the very epitome of the word, made flesh, the text put into flesh, and he came alive, he fulfilled every jot and tittle, every iota of the word. And then he died upon the cross to, so that the righteous God can stay righteous and forgiving us. So that righteous God can say, no longer does he see our sin in our place, but he sees Jesus in our place. God, we love the word here because the word is Jesus Christ. We have a high regard for scripture because the scripture is Jesus Christ and he is our savior, he is our salvation and we worship him. Amen? May you know the word and may the word transform you. Amen. Let's pray together.